Coming up the No City on the Sideline Dad podcast, I have a game-changing episode you don't want to miss. My special guest today is David Greenwald, the founder of Lean Lifestyle University. David's here to revolutionize how we think about food and fitness. Get ready to explore the struggles we encounter when making the healthier food choices. Dave will guide us through the maze of eating psychology, enlighten us on the food preferences. Prepare to have your diet misconception debunked as we clear up the common blocks on our path to health. Dave will share his expert insights on maintaining a balanced diet, one that brings pleasure without compromising our health. But that's not all. Dave will arm us with practical real-world advice, tips developing healthier eating habits. He'll share sustainable strategies and the benefits of overall well-being. Buckle up for this episode, brimming with wisdom, inspiration, innovation, thinking around food and fitness. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. If it's your first time, thank you for listening. Your presence truly means a lot. I know you have many options right now, and you taking time to listen to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Our journey together revolves around discovery. As a father, I'm constantly learning and growing. That's important. They said that the one thing they say all the time is, if you stop learning, you're dead. Uh, I want to keep learning. I want to be alive, actually. By learning from my guests, we all become better individual parents. Let's face it. Parenting can be challenging sometimes. <laughs> it can be challenging and interesting. But together, we navigate through it, through the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Joe Foley. I'm thrilled to have you here. Today on the No City on the Sideline Dad podcast, my guest, David Greenwald from the Lean Lifestyle University and author of the book, The Leanest Lifestyle. Dave helped students, members from every walk of life get the truth strategy to lose excess fat for the last time. Dave discovered the evidence-based system approaching to getting a, off his own 50 extra pounds and keeping up with 25 years and counting. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for having me. It's a really a pleasure to be here. It's just interesting too, the traditions and stuff too, and also tradition with food. And that's a time where people have a tendency to overeat because, man, Christmas time, there's a ton of good food. Yeah, absolutely. It's this whole period between, you can extend it if you want. You can say like from Halloween through mm-hmm. like mid-January, or you could at least say from Thanksgiving through mid-January, that's uh, a time where the people that struggle with weight are most likely to put on the average, and it can range. You can have people put on 30 pounds, but the average is about five to seven pounds for people who struggle with weight between Thanksgiving and mid-January. And, and the thing with that is, I think a, a part that gets left out a lot is for the person who struggles with their weight uh, continuously, what happens is they don't lose the excess between the mid-January and the rest of the year. And so what happens is over a period of years, that five to seven pounds accumulates and in five, six, seven, 10 years, it's 30, 40, 50 pounds. And it, it doesn't always perfectly work that way, of course, where you add five to seven pounds and you don't lose it. And the reason you added five to seven pounds, it was over the holidays. But that is, uh, from my experience and also in, in published evidence-based research, something that they that has borne out to be true, that it's about five to seven average and it doesn't get lost throughout the year. So yes, it's uh, this is a, as I say to you know my students that I work with, this is a treacherous time. It's a beautiful, wonderful, amazing time. Uh, to spend with family and with all the various uh, food-like substances that are around, but it's also a time that we we need to be extra awake. What's always interesting too is 
you don't realize those things creep up with the extra weight and extra calories creep up you and over a period of time. Wow. Where did the time go? I'm 50 pounds overweight. Yeah, it really does. It so often does. And so many of my clients come to me. It's not like they didn't realize at some point along the way, but it really weren't fully aware that it had gotten to where it had gotten to. And so it's okay. Wherever they are, we always try to meet uh, our students, no matter what their experience is, we try to meet them where they are and we just take it from there, whatever it is. We're very used to it. I've been doing this for 30 years and I, I wouldn't want to say that I have, I've seen it all, but boy, I've seen a lot. And there isn't anything, what I say, and I don't mean this in a cocky way at all. I say this in more, I hope, hopefully a way where, where somebody would be a little bit more relaxed. But whatever your situation, whatever your background, whatever the thing is, I always say, you don't scare me. And when I say <laughs> you don't scare me, it's just, hey, we've, I've been here before. Whatever you've got, we can work through it, that, that kind of thing. Just re with regard to the holidays and things, there are things that to me, and because of how long I've been doing this, that are just incredibly common. But for the person, it can feel like, like they're the only ones with the problem. I'm the only one suffering. I'm the whatever. I'm the one that can't get this under control. I'm the one that this. And it's so not that. It's so not you. It's so not just an individual thing. It's so common. And, and there are you know, ways to overcome it. Do you think sometimes with all the information out there nowadays with dieting, eating and stuff, people get overwhelmed? Absolutely overwhelmed. No question about it. And if you're... I'm, I'm making a motion in case you can't see me. I'm making a motion as though I'm thumbing through social on my phone, right? Scrolling up, scroll, whatever you're doing, whether you're clicking or scrolling or whatever you're doing, go to 40 different sites, look at 40 different social media channels, and you're likely to get 20, 30 different ideas, opinions, hacks, strategies, tips, whatever. And you're like, well, this person says that I can't eat any carbs at all. Okay, okay, I'm going no carb now. He, uh, this person's got 100,000 followers and they say no carbs. Okay, I'm no carb in it. The next person says, you absolutely need carbs. And, what kind of, and then this person says, but it's this kind of carbs. And this person says, if this isn't what you do and this isn't your specialty and this isn't something you've spent a tremendous amount of time researching and learning, it can really feel confusing and overwhelming. Well, I'm curious because carbs, I mean, isn't carbs important though? Here's the thing. Of the macronutrients that provide calories, mm -hmm. they are, there are three that provide calories. They are carbs, proteins, and fats, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, right? And I'm, I'm going to say this, and it might make it sound like carbs aren't important, but they are. But let me say it this way first. So when it comes to proteins, really for your body are amino acids, mm -hmm. okay? And with regard to the amino acids, there are essential amino acids. So there are amino acids that we have to get from our food supply because our body can't make them essential. That's why they're called essential. They're essential because dietarily we have to get them in. When it comes to fats, there are essential fats. There are fats that are essential. We have to get them from our food supply because our bodies uh, can't make them. There are no essential carbohydrates. We can, yeah, it, it is an eyebrow Whoa. razor. It's, there it's... are no essential carbohydrates. Our body can function and live on zero carbohydrate intake. It can. Is it ideal? Depends on the person. I'm going to say no. Ideally, our brain functions most commonly when carbohydrate, when dietary carbohydrates are present, our brain operates on carbohydrates, glucose. And so when it's present dietarily, our brain operates on glucose. When dietarily carbohydrates are not present, 
our brain will still at least partially operate on glucose, but it's going to be from the glucose our body makes. See what's going on here? So like our body can make some glucose from amino acids, okay, as one source. And, and because of that, there isn't an essential aspect to carbohydrates. Then our brain can actually also operate on ketones, which people are on ketogenic diet or are aware, very aware of. So between ketones and glucose, our brain can function without any dietary carbohydrate. But by and large, we're going to function best usually when we consume some carbohydrates, all of the macronutrients, carbs, proteins, fats. You see that too, like when during a um, big marathon, you see the night before, everybody's lining up to get this huge amount of spaghetti. And they're, obviously the runners are going to burn it off in 26 miles the next day, but yeah, that's like mounds of carbohydrates right there. A yeah, absolutely. And depending on what they're doing, they, they are uh, feeding the machine, so to speak, prepping the machine so that there is stored carbohydrate. Carbohydrate in the body is stored as glycogen. It's stored primarily in liver and skeletal muscle. And we store a lot more carbohydrate than we do protein, but we store a lot more fat than we do either carbohydrate or protein. We really can't store protein, so to speak, but we can store carbs as glycogen. And of course, we can store fatty acids. Well, protein, I'm always interested. I know protein, like meat protein and stuff like that. How important is it? Again, there are essential amino acids. So it's very important. And it, as the research continues to come out, it just really supports what I see in the real world too, is what happens over time is the, the older we get, if we don't strength train, we're going to suffer from something called sarcopenia, which is, I'm, I'm going to throw natural in quotes. I'm making air quotes here, mm -hmm. natural age-related decline of muscle mass. And if you've got an older parent, a grandparent, whoever, and they haven't been active with strength training, you've seen it happen with your own two eyes. They get more frail, they get thinner, they've lost muscle. Their body fat may not even increase, but they've got less muscle and things change and they're less mobile and they're less blah, blah, blah. That's sarcopenia. And not only is strength training important, but the protein that supports the muscle mass, which we need it for all kinds of reasons. There are hundreds and hundreds of biochemical reactions that are reliant upon uh, amino acids in the body. But if we just look at it from a skeletal muscle side of things, then it's critically important. And as the research continues to come out, in fact, there was just some newer research that isn't really surprising, but they, what they found is the older someone gets, the greater the increased need of dietary protein because it's not absorbed as efficiently. It's not processed as efficiently. So we need more of it. And so it's really important. And so I'm just going to throw it out there just so your listeners have a kind of a, a baseline. If you're not getting in at least 125 grams of protein a day, you're probably too low. Now, that doesn't mean that sky's the limit. We don't need 350 grams of protein. Or maybe if you're Brian Shaw, who's 6'8", 420 pounds, he's the world's strongest man. He's 6'8", 420. He probably needs 400 grams of protein a day or whatever. He's a huge man, but the average human being won't need that. But it's 125 would be like the basement, you know, and probably 175-ish is going to be a, a good place. Some, somewhere in that range for, say, the average person who wants to maintain muscle, which should be a goal of everybody, at least maintain it, because you're going to lose it. It is a use it or lose it phenomenon on muscle. So protein is critical for the maintenance of skeletal muscle among the other 
hundreds and or thousands of reactions that uh, amino acids have in our body. So it's critically important that we maintain and we get in enough protein. It's interesting. You mentioned the minimum, the hundred something right there. What would be that equipment during the day to get that protein? That's a great question. Let's say in a, a whole egg is about seven grams of protein. Okay. That's a whole egg. Now an egg white is about five. So the greatest portion of an egg for protein comes from the egg white, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not as concerned about the fat. I'm not even, I'm not cavalier about the cholesterol in an egg, meaning I don't throw caution to the wind. Some people do and say, hey, it doesn't matter. Eat all the dietary cholesterol you want, you'll be fine. And I'm only just mentioning that because I just mentioned egg. Mm -hmm. uh, but with regard to protein, the majority of the protein in an egg comes from the egg white, seven total grams in a whole egg, five grams ish in an egg white. Uh, but a chicken breast, for example, a four ounce chicken breast, just to give you an example, is about 20 grams of protein. Now, you have an eight ounce ribeye, just an estimate here, but it can be like 60 to 80 grams of protein in an eight ounce ribeye. Somewhere in there, it obviously is going to vary. But if you look at a lean source of protein, lean source of protein is going to give you the biggest bang for your buck with regard to calories. So chicken breast, low fat, right? It's a lean source of protein, 20 grams of protein-ish per four ounces. And that entire four ounce chicken breast is only like 100 to 120 calories. You can figure like 20 grams of protein is about 80 calories. So 80 of the 180 of the 120-ish calories comes from protein. So it's really high protein food, really high protein animal source of food. So your animal sources are going to provide the greatest protein bang for the buck compared to plants. Not that you can't get all the protein you need from plants. You can if you get enough variety and so forth. But your animal source protein gives you the biggest bang for your buck on quality and also the amount of protein per calories that you get. Interesting too, because I never thought about it. I like chicken and right now chicken beef. And I saw the people with a the big, they always had the eating contest. I think it's way too much and gross. Yeah. When they had the half a cow on the plate and stuff like that, that's way too much for me right now. And I'm a big man and I'm, I'm like, I can't eat that. But another question is uh, obesity. It's, you hear about it on the news and stuff and the, how it's like an epidemic. What is your thoughts about that? I agree. But why? And here's what I mean by epidemic level. In 1970, about 15% of us here in the United States, 15% were obese. And today it's 43%. So we've gone from 15% to 43% in 50-ish years. Why? So you, you, let's look at it. Why is mm -hmm. that the case? Somebody could just say, we're just eating more. Maybe, but what's going on? Why are we eating more? Is there, in the last 50 years, has there become some willpower deficiency effect? You know what? We, we've all, as a society, we've all just lost willpower points. I'm going to say no. I know in 50 years, I, I do not believe that has happened at all. Or it's so minimally, I do not think that's the factor. Did we have a, some kind of degradation of hearing? Did we have a hearing loss issue where we, could, we quit hearing the message that keeps getting put out there? Eat less and exercise more. I can, get on, I can get on the tallest building in your city, grab a bullhorn and scream, eat less and exercise more. And I can guarantee you how many people will change when I scream that. Zero. So you all heard it before. Yeah, they've heard it before. So we didn't have hearing loss. Did we? What about memory impairment? Is that the reason for obesity? Like we forgot all things in moderation, Joe, all things in moderation. What, you forgot that? You've heard that since you were a kid. So what's going on? Oh, that's not basic math. You can't do, we don't need to do trigonometry. 
calculus and whatever. But can you have you forgotten basic math, arithmetic? You forgot how to count calories? Has that happened since 1970? No. Genes? Our genes do change over time, but have they changed greatly in 50 years? The answer is no. They change very slowly. Now there could be, I'm gonna throw this out there, and I don't we won't get into it because it would be a subject all by itself. There is something called epigenetics. Genetics is basically Everything in our environment, everything we consume from thoughts, air, water, food, emotion, you name it, stressful life situation, smog, whatever, anything in our environment that we consume or that Im impacts us externally and internally is like software that can impact our DNA. So it's, that's called epigenetics. Like these things can impact what our DNA do on our body. So in that way, it could change genes to a certain extent, but I'm still going to say overall, in 50 years, no. Have there been epigenetic changes? Yes. So it's not willpower deficiency. It's not a hearing loss, memory impairment, basic math, and genes. So you go, okay, Dave, you told us what it's not. What is it? Well, one question I have, and this, and then probably lose them like, on this testing I was thinking sure. about was, in the last 50 years too, everything become more convenient. We're more on the go, more stress, more things. I'm not sure we had these many fast food restaurants 50 years ago. We did not. We didn't have a microwave or we didn't have stuff that's frozen in the freezer like we do now. That's right. Absolutely true. All of that contributes. So I, I look at it. There's a quote by H.L. Mencken that I love, which says, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And so if we try to oversimplify it as far as what the problem is, then we're going to come at it with an oversimplistic methodology for trying to solve it. So Here's the thing, it, the, comp, the problem is complex. However, I at least wanna preface all this by saying that when I at least give this you know, outline of sorts of what I believe the issue with obesity is, what's causing it, the cool thing is even though it's complex, the way we come at it or way it, it can become at is a structured systematic way that takes all of these factors into consideration, doesn't oversimplify it, but doesn't make it so complex that step-by-step step, progressively along the way, people go, holy crap, there's <laughs> 10 things going on here and it's, I'm out. I'm out. I can't deal with all this. So let's hit it. So first of all, something that hasn't changed and something that is hardwired in all of us is biological drive. So <laughs> biological drive to calorie dense food-like substances, right? So we, you know, the reason we've evolved, the reason we've survived as a species is because we inherently biologically have a drive for things that are calorie dense because our, our stone age ancestors and so forth didn't have access to food all the time. So it served us well to be able to like, all right, let's get it right now. It's available. Let's go. Let's get it. We're driven toward it. Lots of calories. Let's store up if, if we can, because it could be days. It could be however long before we get this feast again. All right. So that's in us. It served us really well throughout evolution. However, it's not so great now, but it's still there. So that hasn't changed since 1970. But we have just common sense things. We have habits, just general habits. What I do is on my way to work, I always swing through McDonald's or whatever and I get breakfast. Okay, so that's a habit. And part of it's habit and part of it's some of the other things I'm gonna talk about, but some things are just habit. When I come home from work or whatever, when I come home from work, first thing I do is go to the fridge and get a snack or whatever. Go to the cupboard and get a snack. It's a habit. It's like a pattern that a lot of people aren't aware that it has become very conditioned. Then we have things within the habits that I call them, you know, conditioned automated responses, where it's like when this situation, emotional event, 
when this emotional trigger, whatever occurs, I respond with this. When this occurs, I seek relief and I get relief by drinking, eating, and every single time when whatever this, the upheaval is, whatever the situation is, whether it's celebratory or it's anxiety or it's whatever it may be, worry, stress, fear, whatever it is, and we're trying to change our state, we have conditioned, we have been, become conditioned over many years, decades usually, to go, you know what? I can get very short-term but immediate reliable relief to zone out for two minutes by having blah, fill in the blank. And that's a conditioned automated response. We're like Pavlov's dogs who were taught <laughs> to salivate just when the bell rang, even if there was no food. Over time, that's kind of that, that Pavlov dog experience. He, he rang the bell, fed them, they'd salivate. He taught them that ringing the bell, food is coming. Then he was able to do it just, he was given to salivate just by ringing the bell. That's us on this conditioned automated response. Something happens in our life, we respond by changing. We want to change our state. We're worried. We want to get out of that uh, position we're in mentally. So we've got biological drive. We've got habits and conditioned automated responses. Those things really haven't changed a ton. Although I will agree with you, Joe, I think you said at the top of the program that we've got a lot of stuff going on right now in the oh, society. Yeah. I try not to consume major news. I really do. I so limited because if everything's a five alarm fire, everything. <laughs> and we just, every day, if you consume that stuff too much, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket and it seems very concerning and this is going on. And so anyway, I try to bring all that down and I highly recommend that if someone is affected in a negative way by that, please do the same. All right. But we've got drive, we've got habits, we've got conditioned automated responses. And here's something that some people will still say contra is controversial, but I'm going to explain why I think they think it's controversial, and that is addiction. So the question is, can you be addicted to food? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Now, here's the thing. Here's a thing that makes it confusing for people and will make it argumentative if you're talking to a dietitian, who a dietitian will typically say, not all, will typically say you cannot be addicted to food because it's something we need to live. And what I say is your definition of food is not mine. My definition of food, I usually call it real food, but let's just yeah. call it, let's say real food just for differentiation purposes for the program. And it's usually how I say it anyway. So can you be addicted to food? No, if we're talking about real food. Yes, if we're talking about ultra processed food. And so you go, what's the difference? Real food, which I, we can just say food, real food is the natural, unprocessed, edible parts of plants and animals that have been removed and have not been processed further after removal. Okay, then I'll say, then we got to add, and the only thing added to it are things commonly found in kitchens. So let me say that again, because that's a mouthful. Real food, the natural, unprocessed, edible parts of plants and animals, where the only thing added to them are things commonly found in kitchens. What, I have a quick question about that, because I'm interested is, when did like, we become an ultra-processed food society? When did that take place? And what was the purpose? Real food's important, but what is the purpose of that? Is it convenience for people or is it just because of the way society is going? I'm curious about that. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Not coincidentally, it, it came in before 1970, of course. Mm. Late 1800s, 1900s, it, it would have more so started, so to speak. There's always been processing of some degree. 
but it really started to come in post 1950, 60, 70. But it's just grown exponentially since the 80s, 90s, and so on. And there is no doubt a give the give the quote unquote consumer what they want. There's a profit motive there, obviously. We have shareholders, companies, corporations have shareholders they want to satisfy profit. And I don't say that as someone in business, I don't say that as that's an evil thing. I just say that it happens to be a thing that is real and that has to be considered. And so what happens is food scientists, food manufacturers realize that if they can honor the Lay's tagline, bet you can't eat just one, they can honor that, you're going to buy more and more. If you buy more and more, you're a repeat, I'm going to say user, not consumer, because what happens is with what they're doing to the food supply and the ultra-processed food, they work, these food scientists work on things until they hit the bliss point. You may have heard that from other sources or books or whatever. And this bliss point is that perfect combination, not only of sugar, salt, and fat, but of industrial additives that also add that extra mouthful, texture, flavor, you name it, so that it's not, we like salt. We'll just add a bunch of salt. No, if we eat something that's got too much salt, we go, ugh, that's, that's too gross. much. Too salty, right? <laughs> and we can do the same thing with sugar. Usually we can be like, oh, that's too sweet. But if you find that perfect, and then when they add in the industrial additives, flavorings, and you name it, they hit that bliss point. And so I'm on addiction. So I'm going to say they turn us from consumers into users. And the difference there is as a consumer, you are able to make a rational choice. You can be like, Joe, if you're looking at a, I don't know, a new set of speakers for your computer or whatever, you can be like, I want those or I don't want those, whatever. You can make a rational choice when it comes to food-like substances, ultra-processed food, unwittingly, you've become, and I don't say you, I just mean as a society, you've become a user, like a substance use user, rather than a consumer where the decision, because you're not, a lot of people aren't conscious of it. They aren't thinking of it with the rational brain. It's just, that was awesome. Dopamine, right? We get a dopamine hit, which tells us that was very, that was awesome. That's something you want to do again. Seek that out in the future. You definitely want to repeat that. And it's, and so is there food addiction? No. Is there ultra-processed food addiction? Absolutely. But interesting thing you said, when you were talking about that, and I had, and it come to mind is, especially, I know the 80s, watching Saturday morning cartoons, Captain Crunch, yep. Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios. And that's all the process where all the sugar and all that stuff Absolutely. too. And they, they kind of market toward the kids because they always had their prize and that stuff. And when you were talking about, all I could think of is commercials when I was a kid, but cereal. Absolutely. And I'm going to, mention that in just a moment when we talk about just the other kind of overarching massive contributor to obesity just being the with the obesogenic environment and so the other thing too joe is that market come on happy meals <laughs> marketing to the kids oh yeah cute commercials that kind of thing start them young and you, when you think of it that way if you think of it that way again do i think corporations are inherently evil no do I think there's some evil in there? Sure, just like there is anywhere, but it's profit. And that, dr- that drive for profit, good in some ways, 
not so good when it comes to creating these users, starting them at a young age and having them hooked, literally hooked at, at a young age. And mom, dad, I want this, I want that. And of course, it's always ultra processed because that's what they've been given and that's what they've seen and, and continued to see on, on television. So, so we got addiction. What do we got? Biological drive. Okay. We've got habits and we've got the conditioned automated responses. We've got ultra processed food addiction. And we need to say it that way. Do we have food addiction? No, because old Dave says real food is this and there's, we're not going to be addicted. You're not going to be addicted to a chicken breast and broccoli, Joe. No, you know, more, more addicted to probably the donut at the coffee shop more than the chicken. Donut, coffee shop, the cereal, you name it. Yes. And all of that, of course, ultra processed. Here's where, here's where I say, again, we're trying to find the answer to why has the obesity increased so much. No question in my mind, the proliferation of ultra-processed food displacing real food is the answer. What has caused this massive increase of ultra-processed food displacing, meaning taking the place of real food? If you go back to, Joe, your grandparents or great-grandparents, if you had spoken to them, or maybe you have, or if anybody has the opportunity, ask them how many times they went out. That's true. That is very true, actually. They didn't go out. It was unbelievable. I asked, my dad is uh, 78, and he's, I've asked, I asked him in the last few years, Dad, how many times did you go out as a kid? He was like, man, he goes, it was like once a month. And that was a really special thing. His mom, my grandmother, made dinner, food, every day. It primarily was food, real food. And that was the majority. There were some things that would have been processed even back then in the 50s and 60s, whatever, when my dad was growing up. But by and large, no, it, it just wasn't. How many times do you go out? What stuff was in the cupboard at home? That's true. Stuff like nowadays we have like cans of uh, vegetables, cans of spaghettios or uh, jar sauce and pasta, but you don't see the stuff that Stuff from scratch, like in the freezer or in the refrigerator, because they didn't have the convenience we have now. No, they, they, they didn't. It wasn't available. And, and that proliferation of ultra processed food is the number one contributor to the obesity. But, but why the increase in, in, in ultra processed food? You, you had said we have uh, more than 100,000 fast food restaurants in the United States, more than 100,000 convenience marts. At what point? It was only, I want to say, in the 80s, 90s-ish, where 24-7 convenience marts, you could just buy it. There was no, hey, they shut down at 10 p.m. You better get, you better run down to the store before 10 p.m. or they're closed. 24-7 now. No, exactly. There's no such thing as closed, unless you're in a food desert. There's no such thing as there's nothing available at 2 a.m. And so you've got proliferation, well, you're not proliferation, you've got number of fast food restaurants, you've got convenience marts, and let's face it, with those things just being more of them, you're more likely because of convenience and location and, and how many there are to uh, frequent them. We do have an opportunity for less activity that contributes to the obesogenic environment. But I will say there's some research that says that because we do have more leisure time activity, enough people are doing more leisure time activity because they have it, where that's offsetting what they used to think was because we sit at computers like you and I are now, that's all we're doing. We're not burning any calories. There's research that disputes that, all okay. right? So I want to say there is opportunity for less activity. That is a factor for a number of people, and I get that. But it isn't universal, but it is a factor. The other thing I'm going to say is, and I think this is a, a big thing for any parent guardian who has 
kids under the age of 16 when they can't drive and they basically are, they can't go anywhere unless you take them. Because yeah. um, at that, up to that point, I feel like that's when we have the greatest influence control, so to speak, over what the kids are going to get to eat. Not that they're not going to be able to get with friends and find something at school or wherever. But the modeling that parents or guardians do for their kids is incredibly impactful on the obesogenic environment. So as the parents are seeking convenience, ease, and again, say under the influence of their own ultra-processed food addictions, or even if it's not an addiction, if it's just excessive use, okay, you can just, if you want, you can call it triggered eating. Some people are, I can't do the addiction. I don't want to be labeled an addict. And I get that. So what I often say is, are you a triggered eater? And, if, and a triggered eater has a continuum where it goes user and mm-hmm. then more advanced abuser and then most advanced addict. So here's the thing. If, if you just say, are you a triggered eater? 90 some percent of people are going to raise their hand and go, yep. <laughs> Especially if you just say user or it's the lower end. I use ultra processed food for convenience, for changing my state of mind for, okay, but I don't do it a ton. Okay. As parents do that themselves, guess what happens to the kids? They model that the parents because they model it. Yeah. And as a parent, you can say, like I say, my youngest is 28. I got kids. My kids are all grown now, 28, 33. But as a parent, you realize, of course, that your kids are watching you and they hear what you say, but they see what you do. And they, that seeing what you do is so incredibly, the mom, dad, I hear what you're saying, but you don't do that. Well, you're saying that quickly, I wanted to remind me of a video I was watching. I've probably done this myself too. The dad's telling you can't put the snacks away. And he's sitting on the couch in a bag of Doritos and and yelling at the parent, the kid to cut out the eating and the kid, you're eating too much. And he's just mowing away on a bag of Doritos. Absolutely. And the kids, no matter what age. They are not fools. They look at that and they go, they may not say anything because they just have respect or whatever it may be, depending on that whole relationship, but they see it. And so that's, anyway, that's just another factor. It's not like everything. Marketing, you had mentioned that commercials and things. Marketing is a huge, so we're trying to get to the answers of why why is there this increase in the proliferation of ultra processed food, which I say is the number one factor for for the obesity crisis. Marketing. I oh mean, yeah. What was the last time you saw broccoli marketed on Saturday morning? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Zero. No, no. It's more is talk about McDonald's commercial, some kind of power drink, especially if it's kids. The sugar ultra, sugar can of spaces can of sugar, and stuff like that. More like that or Snickers bar, market to kids, and yes. nothing about broccoli or chicken. Once in a while, okay, eat you four food groups or something like that, but that's very rare. And of course, I'm just saying broccoli, but just think, when was the last time you saw a commercial, a real commercial on just eating vegetables, a real commercial on just, how about this? Forget the vegetables, which aren't as tasty, just eating real fruit, like whole fruit, eat an apple, eat a banana, whatever. You don't see it. Like, you just don't. We can just throw a blanket on all of that. And the other thing I would say is, and there's more to it, but I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at this with regard to the obesogenic environment is government subsidies. We, the government subsidizes primarily five things, corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice. So cotton, not so much a factor here with what you and I are talking about, 
but the corn, soybeans, wheat, and rice, those things can be fine when they're in their natural state, but they are used as the primary sources of what become ultra-processed food. So uh, those items are being subsidized. So of course, again, I don't blame the farmers. They're like, hey, I got to make a living. I've got to make sure that I've got put food on my table. And I'm going to, if I can get some help or, or if there is a subsidy that can help ensure that I can be okay when an off year or whatever, yeah, I'm going to grow corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, whatever it may be. And so we grow more of that. And, and th but those things are the things turned into ultra processed food. So let me just quick summary, biological mm -hmm. drive that hasn't changed in 50 years. We got that. There's not much we can do about that. It's just there. Okay. We're driven toward it. Got it. Okay. Habits. We've got our habits and we should just be more aware of it. Conditioned automated responses. Again, start to think about, wait a minute, every single time this happens, I resort to this and what's going on? It's a very short term relief that I get. It lasts like two minutes, five minutes, and then I feel horrible a lot of times, right? You don't, you get the after effect of feeling bad for eating whatever you ate because you feel worse after doing it. But in that moment, it felt good. So, but that's a conditioned automated response. Then we've got addiction, ultra-processed food addiction, not real food addiction, ultra-processed food addiction. And then we've got just the obesogenic environment, the marketing, the restaurants, the convenience marts, parents and guardian modeling, government subsidies, and there's more to it. But that is what we're dealing with when you go, how do I address the obesity issue? It isn't one thing. So we having an awareness of these things gives us a base to be like, okay, that sounds overwhelming when I get it. If somebody just listening on first blush here goes, that sounds overwhelming, Dave. And I don't, and I wouldn't blame them a bit, but what I'd say is we know how to address it. If we know what we're, we need to address. If we know the foe, which isn't one thing, if we know the foe that we're really facing, then we can create strategies and systems to address it head on instead of trying to throw a Band-Aid on it or trying to do a, quote, hack or just a one-off or a, I just, if someone says, I just need to, yeah, they've minimized it. They, they're taking a reductionist position. There isn't, I just need to. I just need to, Joe, I don't know. What might you say, Joe? I just need to move more. There, perfect. And you go, yes, that's true. But that is reductionist. That is too simple, again, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And so <laughs> I like that, that. I like that saying. <laughs> yeah. So that's moving more part of it. No question. That'd be great. You've probably heard this. Everybody listening's probably heard this. You can't outrun a bad diet. No, because they, they also, too, they say that sleep and eating is important, but sleep also important. But food is important, too, what you put in, because... Like I said, we convenience and stuff like that. But one thing I was interested to is quickly, I just wanted to, because you talk about calories in, calories out. And I always have those diets with, hey, my fitness pal, counting yeah. the calories. Right. Is that a good way to control your diet? Maybe control your calories intake? It can be. What I'd say is with my fitness pal, we promote it for a window of time. Mm -hmm. We don't promote it as a lifestyle. We don't promote, nutrition tracking as this is what you now do for the next 40 years. We do it as a way to increase consciousness, 
Remember, you heard me say a few times, we've got to wake up. We've got to increase consciousness. We've got to wake up instead of going, just to, instead of that conditioned automated response, this is what I do, or the habit, this is what I do, where the subconscious is running the show. We need to increase consciousness and, and, and engage the front part of the brain that has the reason and ration involved and then try to manage emotions all along the way because emotional fitness is a huge part of this. But when it comes to the aspect of making these decisions, we have to look at it from the emotional fitness way so that we can get, our, get the front brain to settle the emotional brain down. And through that, we can make better choices, better decisions all along the way. And so we have to stay conscious as best we can to make the better decisions so that we're not just operating on autopilot on subconscious behaviors. That was interesting, interesting because I've tried it before and I've lost some weight myself and but I go right back to my old habits. Like we talked about before, habits. Then when things get stressful in, in time and things you, you're not thinking about, it, you just want to get through the day and things get stressful. One other question is, you also, the Lean Lifestyle University, what is that and what is it about? So I created, I wrote the book, The Leanest Lifestyle, first in 1999, created, was one of the very early adopters of the internet. We put the program online. We had nutrition tracking back then. It, everything was very rough compared to what it is now, of course. I created the first website with dial-up. There was no fast internet. <laughs> <laughs> Got disconnected every five minutes. I had to reconnect and, and keep going. But anyway, we created the program back then. I wrote the book, The Leanest Lifestyle, back then. Revised it uh, four times. And the, the final edition I, I put out in 2002. And what I've done to keep everything current and relevant is I now continue, and I've continued to revise, but I continue to uh, put the newest out on our program, which is still delivered on through our, our website, through our portal. But Leanest Lifestyle University is evidence-based, practical, step-by-step -step progressive strategies and methodologies for addressing this large obesity-driving, obesogenic environment we're living in, in a way where we meet our clients where they are. I, I, I've got, it just came into my head, but I, just because it, a gentleman just came in yesterday and he's 450 pounds. Wow. Great. That's where he is. What else is he doing? What else is going on in his life? What else, what age is he? What experience does he have? We take all that into consideration and I'm not going to give him, just as one example of hundreds, I'm not going to give him the Dave Greenwald getting ready for a bodybuilding show three weeks out plan. No. <laughs> that's not going to work. That's, and that's not a direction he ever needs to go. But we, with all the things that I talked about with regard to obesity, being considered, which he isn't aware of yet. He probably doesn't even have the information your listeners have yet because he just started two days ago. He will get it in time. And as he understands it and as he gets educated, evidence-based education for lifestyle improvement, step-by-step -step, progressively, he will get more and more tools because, Joe, it's really important that people have their nutrition tools. It's really important they have the activity tools, exercise tools but it's critical that they have the emotional fitness tools so that we can make the nutrition and exercise. It's the emotional fitness leg of weight management that keeps those other two on the straight and narrow, that keeps those other two consistent. 
And for guys, especially who we have this tendency to not ask for directions, <laughs> you know, that's true. I got it. I don't need, I, I, got I don't it. need directions. No way. <laughs> I, I got it. Yeah, I don't need any help. Thanks so much. Or they come in with, Hey, Dave, I know what to do. I just need to do it. What they're talking about when they say, I know what to do. I just need to do it is they're talking about, I need to eat less and exercise more. Yeah, but you might need to eat more volume and exercise more or maybe move a little bit more. But then you go with all of the obesogenic factors that just I even briefly mentioned on your show here today. How do we do it? It's in, well, it's interesting. You mentioned that too, and it come back to me. I'm a little bit over myself and stuff. And, and the doctor sent me to nutritionist and she shows me a plate. I'm, I'm gone to nutritional like a gazillion times. Sure. I'm like, you're not telling me nothing new. <laughs> you're not giving me any information. Right. Just right. show me a plate and this is what you used to have. I'm like, you're really wasting each other's time. It is because the eat less, exercise more part, people are confused about what food is. People, are con people, uh, people in general might think they have a great idea of what, quote, healthy food is. Here's, can I give you this real quick, Joe? It's for oh, like, yeah, good, good, this, good. Whole, this whole aspect of like, well, what's healthy food? I don't even look at that. I don't even look at, is it healthy or not? I look at two things. Is it real food? Does it work for you? Yeah. So you go, what, what do you mean? Was it real food? The natural, unprocessed, edible parts of plant and animal that have only had, if anything, items commonly found in kitchens added to it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, is red dye number four? <laughs> is that commonly found in great grandma's kitchen? No. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't, and that, this is a very loose definition of the real food. But it, again, two things. Is it real food and does it work? So is it real food and does it work? You go, all right, Dave, I, okay, I've got one for you, Dave. Got one for you. Peanuts. And, and you look at the container. Yeah, your eyebrows are already raising, Joe. You look at the container and it says ingredients, peanuts, salt. Let me ask you. Uh, I'll just ask because I know you're going to get it right. Is this by my definition of real food? Is our peanuts where it's peanuts and salt? Is that real food? Yeah, was it, was it, is it? Yes, it is. You got it. Absolutely. Because is it the natural, unprocessed, edible parts of plant and animal? Yep. Peanuts, just peanuts. And then does it have only ingredients commonly found in kitchens? Salt. Oh, so yeah. Okay, so we're good. Is it real food? And then you go, then I ask, but that second question. I didn't say, <laughs> yeah, but it's healthy. You're going to tell me, not you, but you're going to tell me as a client, it's healthy. Somebody told me it's healthy. The nuts are healthy. They're good for the cardiovascular. They're good for your arteries. They're good for gut health. They're good for brain health. Got it. I got it. Yeah. Does it work for you? You go, I eat a jar a day. That's too much, actually. So then you go, doesn't work for you. So even if it's real food, if it doesn't work, or you could be allergic to it, right? If it doesn't work for you, then it's got to go bye-bye. So is it real food? And does it work? Not, is it healthy or not? So I, I look at all of these things usually differently than what your dietitian would say, this is a healthy plate. Yeah. I look at it, is it real food? Does it work? Now, I want to say too, just don't scare people too much. We are never looking for perfection. We're never looking for ever are we looking for, and it needs to be 100% in your life, real food. I eat this way. My, I have hundreds of clients that, that eat this way, but it's going to be to an extent, some a lot more than others. The goal is 90%. So that can afford some opportunities where you're like, hey, this isn't real food, but it's a part of my 10%. We have to have a little bit of that just to be a normal person, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
living in our society as it is, just look, I don't say that food or even ultra processed food, it depends on the person. Again, does it work for you? I don't say that it has to be zero across the board. I have, I actually make my own, you know, pizza. I'm one of these guys where for my splurge, I call it a splurge, not a cheat meal. And that's, again, we're just, we're all about the language and the thought processes and all that, because I call it a splurge and not a cheat meal. Because let me ask you, Joe, when it comes to cheating, what do you think of when you say cheating? Ice cream. Yeah. And what do you think of, what do you think of from a virtue perspective when I say cheating? Uh, Feel better about doing it. Yeah. So it's like, so if you, from a virtue character perspective, you could say, I cheated on a test. Oh, that's not good. No. You know, I cheated. I cheated on a spouse. That's got a connotation that's not cool or whatever. So when we say cheat, it's, oh, you've done something sinful. You've done something bad. If it's a part of your plan, why would we call it a cheat? So I have that's a splurge true. meal. So my clients, I say, hey, you're going to have a splurge meal. We don't need to feel bad about it. You didn't cheat on a spouse. You didn't cheat on a test. You didn't cheat. For real, it's just a part of your plan. So I'm going to have a pizza that I make at least partially, and it was, it would fall into the processed food. The crust would fall into the processed food category, but it's my splurge for the week. And so I have that, and my clients are going to have something once they're in maintenance especially, but definitely all along the way. They're going to have splurges all along the way. And so that splurge can be anything they want as long as it's not a trigger. Yeah, because I like that. I like that actually. I like that way you're talking about that because that one change of words can really help your mindset because you don't feel so bad. You're like, listen, I'm not going to have this one thing. It's a spurge day instead of a cheat. Yeah. That one change is it's very interesting. And you just and you we feel we can feel bad about enough stuff in life. <laughs> yes, true. Know? And we don't need this because it's really undeserved. And the other thing is that you feel like you got to look over your shoulder. I'm looking over my shoulder right now. You got to look over your shoulder like I'm getting ready to have this donut or whatever. If it's a if that's a part of your splurge, just enjoy. Just stay awake. Try not to zone out while you're having it. Actually enjoy it. Try to savor it. Try to stay awake while you're doing it. Instead of I just zoned out, wolfed it, wolfed five of these down. And when I heck, I barely even remembered what I did. Oh, exactly. Um, <laughs> so there's that mindfulness aspect to it. But it, but anyway, there is a lot to this, but you would ask about leanness lifestyle. We've systemized it. We approach it from an individual. Look, we've got to have a framework, we have to, that is applicable to everyone. Like we start here and we've got 15 nutrition fundamentals and blah, blah, blah. But again, if you're coming to me severely addicted, whether you're overweight severely or not, you don't have to be severely overweight to be severely addicted. There's oh, I didn't realize. That's... Usually I always think of people who are severely addicted with food be an overweight person. Overwhelmingly, yes overwhelming yes but you can have people at a healthy weight who are addicted okay they can be what's called an exercise bulimic where they just exercise and literally exercise where it's five six hours a day oh wow yeah and but they are addicted they and they overcome it in this now unhealthy way anyway that can happen that is not the majority that is not anything i'd want to promote as being the major problem but it is out there but anyway just depending on what condition the person's in. Maybe they haven't gotten off the couch in 10 years. That's okay. And we're not going to start somebody saying, and you need to start running one mile a day and train with weights five days a week and you need two hours a day. No, absolutely not. So nutritionally, we're going to meet them where they are. 
um, acti- actively, we're, we're going to meet them where they are. And then with regard to emotional fitness, especially us guys, where the heck did we ever get taught how to manage our emotions? Oh, no, definitely not. Because we're supposed to suck it up and move on. Um, suck it up, move on, don't complain. And we're also wired. We just solve it, man. Just solve it. And that's good. I don't want to take anything away from what we are as men and all that, but we all are emotional creatures and having at least an awareness that, okay, here's, here are emotional fitness factors that I might need to get a better handle on so that I can be a better life manager. Cause if I'm a better life manager in this crazy world we're living in, if I'm a better life manager, especially today when things are not as simple as they were a hundred years ago, simple in certain ways. We have simple things now that make it, we do laundry different than they did a hundred years ago. Oh, yeah, a lot easier. Yeah. We have a lot more, a lot easier. Yeah. We have a lot more machinery and gadgets and these guys, yeah, I get it. I don't want to take anything away and say, oh, the people 150 years ago had it easy. Try to move from east to west across the United States a couple hundred years ago or 150 years ago. That would have been crazy. Anyway, people, I think you guys, I think you guys know, but it is important that even as men, we take these things in consideration because if we do, we really stand a great chance because of, as men, we have advantages over women when it comes to weight loss. Yeah, we don't have as many hormonal factors to deal with. They mentioned, you mentioned obesity. We're talking about obesity a second ago. And I found something that women are more obese than men. There are more women that are obese than men. I need to look at the latest, but I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I would just, I would want to look at the latest stats, but I will say this. Generally speaking, more women are interested in losing than men. Because as a society, we do place more, quote unquote, value on appearance for women than for men. Not that it's not important. Of course it is. For men, it's, and, and I get it. With both sexes working outside the home, and it's, it's a changing dynamic environment there. But generally speaking, we're still tigers. We're still prehistoric, whatever we are. <laughs> We're still go out, kill it, bring it home, provide for the family, be the breadwinner. And, and don't get me wrong. There's plenty of women that make more than men in the same home. And I get that now, but we're generally wired still from an evolutionary perspective to be that way. So there's more of a tendency to have an importance put on that for us. As long as we do a good job providing, there's less pressure a lot of men feel on, not that they don't want to look great too, but there's less pressure on that from society, if nothing else, than it is for women. And the women, they just, they are just going to have it 20% harder because of hormonal factors and less muscle and these other things. So what reason I'm saying that is as men, if we can get a handle and at least accept that we've got these emotional components that we can improve through education and through just strategy and real world approaches, we can take advantage of the fact that as men, we have typically more muscle. We've got more testosterone. We've got less hormonal factors coming in, screwing us up postmenopausally. Not that we don't have andropause. Men that are a certain age, there is such a thing as andropause where testosterone can drop down, blah, blah, blah. But it's still not the same exactly as what's going on with women. I'm just, it's not a d- defend women segment. It's more like, guys, 
we have advantages, but we can still out eat those advantages <laughs> if we don't get a handle on not only what to eat, not only how to move, but that emotional leg. There's three legs there. There's one thing that's interesting. We always, as men, we always seem to put ourselves last. Yes. And so we always put everybody else first. So then when we realize we're always like providing for the family, taking care of the family, doing the house chores, fixing the house. And then we're just eating whatever leftovers are on the table. And next, you know, we're gaining 50 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. There's four for either sides. I say, I think almost universally, there's too little appreciation for the other. And as men, we feel that in a number of ways. And we also don't give ourselves enough self-compassion. We can be very hard on ourselves. And especially in our modern environment, you know, the ability to compare and to feel like other people have it figured out. Other <laughs> people are doing just everybody's doing better than me or whatever it may be. And if that's not the case, because you're just killing it, then that doesn't apply to you. But there's still plenty of opportunity for all of us, male or female, but definitely for men to have too little empathy for ourselves, too much, too little self-compassion. Part of that kind of comes from that Neander Neanderthal thing, Joe, where we're like, don't feel sorry for yourself. And it's no. not that. It's not about feeling sorry for yourself. It's about self-compassion. And self-compassion is very different than feeling sorry for yourself and crying in your, over your, your milk or whatever. But it's more about, hey, I'm a human being. And as a human being, I'm not going to do everything just right. And as a human being, I deserve forgiveness, even self-forgiveness. And as a human being, I still have these things in me that to win this should at least be acknowledged. It's interesting too. And, and, I, and I think one more thing I wanted to ask is, and I really like what you talked about is meeting people where they are. And I find that so much important because not, not everybody's the same. And I, I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. We, I, I mentioned the person just because he's brand new, he's a couple days old, and he just came in and it's not, in 30 years of doing this, plenty of people over 400 pounds. So it's not that, it just popped in my head because he's new. But I also get people that, male or female, but I get people that are 15 pounds from where they want to be. And they already have generally good habits, but they've been 15 pounds from where they want to be for five years. <laughs> it's just 15 pounds. I get it. So why, why do you want to lose it? And for that person, we meet them where they are and we don't say, okay, okay, you've got to walk down your sidewalk, down your driveway and back up to the house. And that's it for the day. Like, are you kidding me? I run a mile a day. I do weights five days a week. I da, 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 da. Yeah, I'm already doing that stuff. So we want to meet them where they are too. So whether you're on the, they're already doing 80% of the things, right? They're just mm -hmm. missing probably some nutritional components probably not missing activity components too much, but they're probably missing nutritional components relating to real food and that kind of thing. And they're probably missing the emotional fitness side of things. Because again, that's what drives the consistent behavior on nutrition and exercise. And again, whether you've got 15 pounds to lose or 250 pounds to lose, having the right emotional tools in your toolbox to address the obesogenic environment, all those factors coming in that contribute to the overconsumption of ultra-processed food. food. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's 
people, the obesity crisis is not being driven by an increase of food, real food. Now, mm -hmm. it's an absolutely, here's the thing. This I just laugh at because I'm like, researchers, you've still got work to do. Latest research <laughs> says that Americans, their, uh, their diet consists of about 60% ultra-processed food. Wow. That's There's not, no that's... way it's that low. No, it's higher. It has to be higher. You're, you're, just like you're listening to me right now, Joe, I was very natural response you just gave. I look at that. I'm like, 60%? So you're telling me the average person, my, by my definition of real food, average person's eating 40% that? Absolutely not. Oh, it's definitely higher. It's like definitely. 90. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Because like I said, with the convenience of the world society now, everybody's right. so busy, it has to be higher. It definitely has to be higher. Well, wrapping up, final thoughts on when they can connect with you and find out more about you. Absolutely. I think we're on all the social channels. We're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all, you know, all of those, YouTube. The easiest way to find me and just figure out if you want to go to those social channels or if you want more information is just go to lluniversity.com. And I, you know, when I came up with the name 23 years ago or so, <laughs> Leanness Lifestyle, I really hadn't taken into consideration two N's, two S's, that's a mouthful. So for the website, I just made it lluniversity.com and anything they would want from there, whether it's contacting me personally, which I welcome, or going to the social sites or whatever from there, getting on the newsletter list, whatever, it's all there. Dave, thank you much for being on the podcast today. I really do appreciate spending time and I had a great conversation. All links will be in the show notes for this episode. I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. As we wrap up this awesome conversation with David Grew, I want to express my sincere gratitude for David joining me today and generally sharing his invaluable expertise on cultivating healthier eating habits and debunking diet myths. If you're interested in learning more about David and the remarkable work he's doing at Lean Lifestyle University, be sure to visit lluniversity.com. For additional information all the links we discussed today, please visit nosydneyonthesideline.com slash 140. If you have any comments, any questions today's episode, I'd love to hear from you in the comment section below. Also, if you want to reach out, nosittingonthesideline.com slash contact. I'll show all my contact information is. You can also send me a message that way. Before we part ways, I want to leave you with two thought-provoking related, you know, quotes related to today's topic. And I think it's kind of fun and interesting. I'm going to try this for now on, like, related topics, quotes, and stuff like that. And um, number one is, a healthier outside starts from the inside. Robert Urich, 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 I think it's U-R-I-C-H. And number the other one is not a short-term diet, it's a long-term lifestyle change. And that person, the author, is unknown. It's important. I've got some really good insight, and I hope you did too. Until next time, I want to wish you a joyful new journey and good health and abundant blessing in the happy new year. Take care. God bless. See you soon.